From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, education politics definitely uh, front and center this week as the legislature came to town, completed their organizational session, rounded out some some committee assignments and made some some changes we expected, some changes maybe we didn't expect. So a lot to sort out here. Yeah, this was kind of the uh, the table setting or the pregame, if you will, for the big 2021 legislative session, which is going to kick off here on January 11th. But legislators were back this week. Uh, really, uh, there was stuff going on all this week, and it was kind of setting the table for everything to come. The new legislators were sworn in. Committee assignments were handed out. We got leadership elections out of the way. Uh, and so we have an idea of who the key players are going to be in some of the key areas. And so um, I guess the biggest news uh, that we saw this week that we pretty much expected was uh, Senator Stephen Thane, Republican from Emmett, uh, was named chairman of the Senate Education Committee uh, for the upcoming session. He's going to succeed uh, former chairman Dean Mortimer, who did not run for re-election. So we've got a new... New slate uh, at the top of the Senate Education Committee. Thane is going to lead it. And then Republican Senator Carl Crabtree, Republican from Grangeville, is going to serve as the vice chair. Mm -hmm. Um, No changes on the House Education Committee, but we were really wondering um, and and waiting for the leadership change at at Senate Ed, right? Right. And and the way these things often work is that the vice chair is in position to get the promotion yep. to the, the chair's position. If the chair retires, as, as was the case with uh, Dean Mortimer, or is voted out of office. So not really a surprise, kind of a, a chalk uh, a chalk move in Senate education. It doesn't always work out that way. So that's why we've always kind of couched this, as we've talked about it leading up to this week's session, that you know, if it goes according to, you know, to conventional protocol. You would expect uh, Stephen Thane to be uh, chair of the committee. That's what we've got. Um, Carl Crabtree has been on this committee for a while, so not terribly surprising that he is uh, vice chair. Uh, But I think, you know, it's going to really be interesting to see what Senate education looks like and how uh, how it unfolds with Thane as chair. And it'll be interesting because, you know, you know, Stephen Thane is a, a, a senator who has a very, uh, some very strong opinions about education, about education policy, about parental rights, about uh, dual credit, advanced opportunities. I mean, he's had his, you know, academic standards. I mean, he's had his finger in a lot of key debates about education policy. And now as, uh, as chair of the Senate Education Committee, I'm going to be really curious to see how much he uh, uses that position to exert his his will on these issues, and, and to what extent is he successful in exerting his will? Yeah, uh, I, I think you're exactly right. It was a very uh, traditional pick uh, as, as a chairman. It kind of honors these legislative values of experience and loyalty. Um, but Thane is someone that we both know well. Uh, I've seen him mm-hmm. in action uh, over the last you know, 10 years or so. He's been in the state house for 14 years now. Um, he's an outspoken member of the legislature. He is a conservative Republican. Uh, he's a school choice advocate. He's a parents, 
parental rights advocate. Uh, he's one of the key legislators pushing uh, for the rewrite and the replacement uh, of Idaho's core content standards. Um, he has been a champion and pushed for the advanced opportunities mm -hmm. and the dual credit programs. Those are some of the programs that let students accelerate their education while they're attending school. It also allows students to earn college credit and advanced credit uh, on the state's dime while attending high school. And, and Thane really was instrumental over several years of getting a couple of those different programs off the ground and then merging them under one kind of advanced opportunities fast forward umbrella and securing some funding. Um, but we expect that he's going to be passionate about school choice issues as he has been. He's campaigned on those issues. Those have been important to him his whole career. And, and we were just talking before we turned on the microphone, um, school funding and the Blaine Amendment and vouchers and scholarships that could benefit private school students and religious and students attending private religious schools could be a big issue in the 2021 legislative session. Not only is that a big issue uh, to Senator Thane personally, uh, we saw a U.S. Supreme Court case earlier this year involving a Montana decision. And so that could be a very big issue, one of several very big issues that we're bracing for in the 2021 session. But Kevin, the way we kind of divided up our chain of command over the last, in recent years anyways, is you really focused on the Senate Education Committee. And so you've really had a chance to watch Senator Thane interact with Senator Crabtree and Senator Den Hartog and some of the other long-term members on that committee. I think the thing about Stephen Thane that jumps out at me is he's he's a very interesting policymaker. And interesting is, it, it so often is used as a euphemism, and I'm not using it as a euphemism. He's He's interesting in that he will take an issue, he will take what he sees as a problem and try to come up with a solution that is sometimes unorthodox. I mean, advanced opportunities and dual credit, when it was first floated a few years ago, and I think this was about the time we were launching, or maybe a little bit before uh, we launched Idaho Ed News, I think it was seen as a really out-of-the-box kind of a, an approach. And it has mushroomed into this program where you know the state is spending oh, what, I think we're up to $20 million this year uh, or thereabouts uh, in terms of what we're making available to students to take uh, dual credit classes, AP classes, uh, international baccalaureate, and on down the list. So Extremely it, successful based on the demand. And one in of terms the issues of participation, there's no question about yeah. the, the success of it. I mean, you yeah. know, kids are using this. Um, now, you know, we're seeing some signs that they're not using it as extensively during the pandemic because they're having difficulty scheduling uh, uh, dual credit classes around the new changing schedule of online learning or hybrid learning. But this has been a popular program with students and it's been a popular program in high schools for several years. So, you know, there's no question Stephen Thane is a conservative. He's a social conservative. He is uh, he, you know, fiscal very conservative. conservative on issues uh, such as uh, school choice, academic standards, uh, common core, but he is not as lockstep a conservative on issues as you might expect. I mean, you know, he he has seen dual credit as an investment. If we put money into this, it's going to save parents and families money down the road in, in terms of their, their, their college uh, education. So, you know, he's 
he's an interesting policymaker. And, yeah. you know, he's, you know, there's a little bit of mad scientist there. And I don't mean that as a derogative statement either. He, you know, he's one of these legislators and there aren't very many of them in either party, frankly, who will say, okay, this is a really complicated issue. What if we tried something like this? You know, let, let's, you know, let's shake up the model and try something like this. I, I think that's a great way. And there aren't many legislators who are as uh, as willing to, you know, to, to shake up the system. So it's going to be really interesting to see what he does as a, as a committee chair. I, I think that's a great way to describe him. And from what I know of Senator Thane, that he would not have a problem at all with your description of him as, as someone who's a thinker and, and, and thinks outside of the box. I know he's also published several books about his political philosophy. I think you can even get one of them uh, downstairs in the state house in the gift shop. But yeah, I, I think he is a contemplative lawmaker. I, I think he enjoys coming up with out-of-the-box I, I, ideas. I think that's really kind of one of his calling cards. And, and, and I think that's interesting. And that's one of the the benefits to having an organization like Idaho Education News where we can really focus in on a specific beat, and by beat I mean a, a coverage area uh, like mm-hmm. education policy, and, and really get to know that over the last. You know, we're about to celebrate our eighth year, and I know you've been covering the legislature longer than that, as have I. But that's one of the nice things about being able to specialize. Is okay, you know, Stephen Thane is a guy that we both know. He's not some, you know, we don't need to get to know him. Uh, anew or whatever. We're going to cover him closely and we're going to follow what he does, but uh, we've we've been able to see him over the last 10 years or so. Right. And I think looking more broadly at Senate education, one of the things that really jumps out at me that's, that's interesting in terms of this committee makeup is that five of the nine members of Senate education are also going to sit on the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, including uh, Senator Crabtree. Now, that's a very interesting nexus, and that's a very potentially very important and powerful nexus between the committee that writes the budget bills and the committee on you know, on the Senate side, anyway, that crafts education policy. I mean, there's and there's always been friction, right, between the budget committees and the policy committees, the quote unquote germane committees. We've so seen, been that we've friction seen public school budgets issue. killed over that issue. Got a committee that's got you know five members who have a foot in both camps. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it could be a very powerful um, alliance, depending on what it goes. But I was just trying to say, we've seen public school budgets killed in past sessions uh, over this sort of uh, delicate balance between the policy side of things and, the, and the, the funding side of things. And that was something that former Senate Education Committee Chairman Dean Mortimer really inserted himself right in the middle of and wanted to have those conversations uh, and wanted to talk about having the policy influence uh, the funding. And, and so it's interesting, but it really gets deep into this. We always talk about the intersection of education policy and politics. And, you know, here we are. But right. And it's an advantage that, you know, quick civics lesson here, in case people are wondering, it's an advantage that the Senate Education Committee has that the House Education Committee doesn't have simply because of time management. Yeah. House Education meets in the morning, JFAC meets in the morning. So a lawmaker cannot be on both committees. Senate education meets at three in the afternoon. I know that because I'm there until five in the afternoon a lot of days uh, watching them do their business. That means that a Senate education member can serve in JFAC, you know, sit in JFAC committee meetings in the morning, 
uh, do Senate education in the afternoon. So it's a it's a tactical, uh, logistical uh, advantage, I guess you could say, for Senate education that they can that they can you know stack budget writers in a policy committee like like Senate education. Yeah. And this was kind of breaking news today here on uh, Friday, December 4th. We expected, but we just found out officially for sure, uh, that Senator Thane uh, will serve as chair and Senator Crabtree will serve as vice chair. But there were a couple of other interesting, you know, shakeups isn't necessarily the right word, but a couple of other interesting things that we learned from the committee assignments and some of the leadership races earlier in the week. Right, Kevin? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if this was a good week for Stephen Thane, it was uh, not a very good week for Wendy Horman. Yeah, she was the uh, former school board member. She's a representative from Idaho Falls, uh, and she had served as a vice chair on the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. That's that joint budget committee. It's a very powerful committee, and Horman had worked up experience and clout uh, to the point where she was playing a large role in writing and carrying the public school budgets. Uh, but this week, uh, she ran an, an unsuccessful challenge against Speaker of the House Scott Bedke uh, in the race for the top leadership position. Uh, Bedke won and uh, was appointed Speaker of the House again. And when the committee assignments came out the next day, uh, Representative Horman lost her spot as the vice chair on JFAC. She was replaced by Representative Carolyn Troy, Republican out of, well, I want to say Moscow. Um, Genesee. Genesee. You know. that, that, the, the greater Moscow area. Exactly, um, exactly. Lake <laughs> County. And, and she's a, uh, you know, but, she's but, a U of I. Uh, alum, U of I yeah. employee. I think she may still work at the university. Yeah, but not to get too far afield here, uh, Representative Horman lost that key spot on JFAC after the challenge to Bedke. And that's something that we saw this week and we've seen in the past, right? Uh, and I guess the idea is if you come at the king, you best not miss because we've yes. seen other members challenge for leadership and really lose the most coveted spots that they hold. Uh, we've, we've seen that for years now and we saw it again this week, right? We saw it this week and not just, uh, Wendy Horman, uh, Judy Boyle, uh, challenged, uh, house majority leader, Mike Moyle, uh, Moyle won and Boyle not only lost the, the leadership election, but she lost her chair. Uh, she had been chair of the agricultural affairs committee. Um, saw it over on the Senate side, uh, Dan Johnson, who was vice chair on the Senate side of JFAC. So he was you know, counterpart to Wendy Horman, uh, Johnson ran for uh, Senate President Pro Tem, uh, ran unsuccessfully. Uh, Chuck Winder was promoted to that position, and uh, you know Johnson is not on JFAC anymore. He lost his vice chairmanship of JFAC, and you know, incidentally, he, you know Johnson will now be uh, on Senate Education. That's one of his committee assignments. So, you know, this is. This is high stakes stuff. And, you know, if you're going to run for a leadership post, especially if you're running against a sitting member of leadership, somebody, if you're running against an incumbent in leadership, you, you better have the votes and yeah. you better have a cushion too, because you, you need, um, you need a majority of members of that caucus who are willing to vote for a change and are willing to, you know, stick their necks out too. I mean, you know, there's risk for members of the rank and file when they decide to vote against the Speaker of the House or they decide to vote against the uh, 
the House Majority Leader. I mean, you know, these, you know, you know, elections have consequences, and uh, legislative leadership elections definitely have consequences. We we saw it this week uh, with with Horman. We saw it with Judy Boyle. Uh, we saw it with Dan Johnson on the Senate side. You know, and really, you know, one of the plot twists from this week. You know, two years ago it was Brent Crane. Yeah. Ring against uh, Scott Bedke. Same, same outcome. Uh, Bedke uh, retained the speakership. Uh, Crane, who was a veteran uh, House member, lo and behold, he finds himself with no chairmanship, no vice chairmanship. You know exactly where Wendy Horman finds herself right now. But well, it turns out this week, Brent Crane is uh, chair of the House State Affairs Committee, one of the most powerful, far-reaching committees in the State House. So he uh, apparently. Uh, you know, served his uh, served his time in purgatory, and um, you know he's he's back in the good graces of uh, of leadership and sharing a pretty powerful position. So, you know, you know you're not per- permanently cast out necessarily, but certainly uh, this this is going to be a big change uh, for you know for Wendy Horman. I don't know if it's going to be that huge a change in JFAC. Um, you know. Carol Nelson Troy has been on JFAC before. I don't know to what extent she takes on the role of being the K-12 budget writer. Uh, just because she's vice chair uh, on the House side does not necessarily mean she's going to be. I think what we'll see is probably what we've seen in the past, where there's kind of this coalition of JFAC members who write up pieces of the K-12 budget. And here again, watch for some of these Senate Education Committee members to take a prominent role in writing these K-12 budgets with an eye towards some of the policy, uh, the policy legislation that's unfolding in that committee. So watch for maybe, you know, you know Dave Lent, who has been, uh, who now is a member of JFAC, uh, Janie Ward-Engleton, uh, a Democrat from Boise who has been active in, in the writing of the budgets, uh, the K-12 budgets, Carl Crabtree. You know, there's going to be a there's going to be a change. There's going to be a change in some of the you know the players and some of the dynamics. What that means in terms of how the budget bills look, as opposed to budget bills in the past, who knows? Yeah, JFAC is a fascinating committee to watch. Uh, yeah. If you can stay in the early mornings, not only do you learn exactly how the state government is pieced together and is funded and run, but you see these opportunities where these where these members of JFAC find these opportunities to be really, really, really influential in almost surgical ways. And I'm thinking of Senator Crabtree and and even Senator Woodward last legislative session on some of the funding and budget work uh, that led to uh, the showdown and responsibilities between uh, the State Board of Education and the State Department of Education that briefly wound up in the Idaho State Supreme Court. Yep. So it's fascinating yeah, so, stuff. You know, it, it's going to be a very different dynamic. Uh, you know, some of the players are going to change what that means in terms of outcome, what that means in terms of policy. Uh, we've got uh, three or four months to sort sort those pieces out. But let's talk a little bit. I mean, this is all really interesting. And in any other year, this would be the the only talking point, maybe, from yeah. the organizational session. But you know, we kind of have to address the elephant in the room. I mean, you had 104 legislators meeting under one roof in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, Clark, you were there briefly. I watched a little bit of the stream, but you were there briefly. You know, 
gives a little flavor of what it looked like and you know and then we'll talk a little bit about how that might uh, influence how we cover this legislative session yeah i went over there real briefly two separate quick trips on thursday uh, i just kind of wanted to get an idea of what was going on over there and, and see it for myself with an idea that maybe this will show us a little bit about what to expect come January uh, when the session gets going for real. And, you know, right off the bat, it was way calmer and way more organized than that special session uh, from the fall. But What wouldn't be, really? <laughs> right. What wouldn't be more orderly than that? Total, total anarchy would have been more rudely than that. But <laughs> so anyways, I got there and, it, you know, uh, there weren't a lot of members of the public around. It really is... Um, I mean, maybe people would even find it dry because it's not like we're debating bills. We're really just setting the stage and and, and ironing out leadership ranks. But they were on the floor. Um, there are signs all throughout the Capitol advising masks and social distancing, but that's not required. Uh, the Democratic legislators were wearing masks and had protective plexiglass uh, installed around their seats on the floor. They actually had that done earlier uh, this year, and, and that's still up. Some of the Republicans wore masks, but many, many Republicans did not, and uh, even had a, a number of them um, huddling up in, in small groups and clusters in corners of the House floor while they talked and they waited uh, for their to get their seat assignments on the floor. And that's a very normal behavior that we would see and expect in previous legislative sessions. Um, but obviously the backdrop is the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, it's continuing to spread in Idaho. Case numbers uh, are higher now than they were uh, in the spring and in the summer. Uh, deaths are up. And we actually have social distancing and mask mandates in place for the city of Boise, uh, but those aren't being enforced at the state capitol building. And so... Um, the legislature is a sovereign body and, and they make right. their own rules as I had a, I, I was able to sit down for a one-on-one -on -one interview with Speaker of the House uh, Scott Bedke, and I really appreciated that opportunity on Thursday, given how busy everything was. Uh, and Speaker Bedke clarified to me that he's not going to be issuing any kind of a mandate uh, from the Speaker's office in terms of how the legislators are going to uh, comport themselves and behave themselves. Uh, so the signs are up. Uh, it's advisement. Um, but, you know, obviously, when we look at the state overall and the approach with individual responsibility, it's kind of what we're seeing in the legislature. Uh, and, and it's the same for members of the public. There were members of the public, uh, you know, hanging out at the state house, watching some of the proceedings. Some of them were friends and family of lawmakers who were just being sworn in. Some of them were wearing masks. Some of them were distancing. Some of them were not. And there's, so there's not going to be any enforcement or, or consequences, it appears, inside the state capitol building uh, based on what I've, I've seen and heard so far. Yeah, it, it feels a little bit like some of what I saw when I was over briefly for the special session in August. And obviously this was devoid of the, the protests and the arrests right. and the, you know, really kind of, disturbing behavior that we saw right in, in that special session this was uh, a lot more of a workman like uh, you know organizational session but you know when i was over there briefly in august um you know just seeing how legislators were handling uh, the, uh, handling their business how they were behaving how you know 
you know, state house insiders, you know, lobbyists and, and, and staff, it didn't feel very different. And it felt like people were behaving very differently. You know, you have close clusters of, of, of people comparing votes or just kind of chatting and killing time. And, you know, you know, as reporters, we get people there too. And the feels, and, and I was having a conversation with somebody I know over there uh, at some length and the behavior, the conduct, the and the protocols really didn't feel like they were that different. And I got to tell you, that's concerning to me. You know, we made the conscious decision, you and I, back in March, that it did feel safe to be over there for the final few days of the legislative session. So we the decision to go remotely. It's it's not a fun decision to make, first of all. You know, yeah. I'd rather be over there firsthand. I'd rather have that kind of access to to the policymakers, uh, you know, be able to talk to them directly, walk up to them after a committee vote and say, you know, and ask them what, what they were, you know, you know, ask them to walk me through their reasoning or, or ask them, hey, well, you know, what are you hearing about some such and such? Yeah. Much rather report that way than to be reporting remotely. But we're having to make this tough choice between public health and access to the public process. And to me, you know, that the public health has to trump the the access right now. And that, that's not fun. That's not a decision that we make easily, but it's a decision we made in March. And, you know, I'm no, I'm no, I'm no expert in infectious disease, but it sure seems to me like we got more virus floating around in and around the state house in December than we did in March. It, it you know, all of the numbers, all of the trend lines tell me that this is a more dangerous situation in December going into January than it was in March. Yeah, that's for sure. That's what the the data shows. It, it, it's affecting uh, my decision and, and my plans for my coverage. Uh, I've decided, and I'm not going to lock into any one thing, but I've decided that for the vast, vast majority of things, I'm going to cover it remotely and virtually. Uh, the state through Idaho Public Television has a streaming service where you can listen to the audio or sometimes the video of all the committee hearings and all the votes and all the House and Senate floor sessions are available uh, on live video. That's how I'm going to handle the vast, vast majority of my coverage instead of going in person. Uh, but I do know that I am going to have to go uh, occasionally on limited basis. And, and when I do, um, I'll, I'll do what I did yesterday, uh, which is I mask up. Uh, and I try to maintain uh, the distance uh, as much as I can as I'm allowed to. Uh, there's certain tight hallways you have to walk through or you know, certain areas where I was just talking to you before we turn on the microphone where it just it, it isn't possible. And, and, and I'm trying to do it and I want to do it. Uh, but to go down a narrow hallway to get to the door to get on the house floor, you, you know, it's like three feet wide. So if yeah. there's five people standing there, I don't know. But so anyways, yeah, I'm, I'm going to minimize my presence there when I go, I'm going to mask up. Um, there are masks available uh, in a box uh, at each floor at the state capitol. Uh, there's hand sanitizer uh, dispensers spread throughout uh, the building. But um, a lot of people are not adhering to some of the best practices uh, that we hear uh, from Governor Little, from the state epidemiologist, from our public health districts, and from the city of Boise and Ada County. Uh, which have public health orders in place, you know, for the city where the state capital is located. And so it's an extremely, extremely difficult 
situation. It's not ideal under any circumstances, um, but that's how I'm trying to navigate it. And it's a difficult situation for everybody involved in this. And, you know, so I don't want this to sound like, oh, you know, poor reporters having to make, you know, tough, tough no, no, no. Having to, you know, you know, having to, you know, you know, soldier forth through this. This applies to staff. It yeah. applies to lobbyists. And those are folks who are just, they're doing their jobs. And it certainly applies to the everyday Idahoans who are going to want to have a voice in public policy in these next three or four months. Yes. You know, this public health situation at the state house affects every group that I just spoke about, you know, staff, lobbyists, citizens, journalists, and the common thread we all have is we have no control over the policy decisions and the protocols that are in place. We have to respond to the protocols that are in place. It's going to be tough for everybody. And, you know, if you're a citizen who likes to, you know, make your voice heard at the legislature or just wants to, you know, have your presence be known by your by your elected officials and you want to have, uh, you know, some influence over the process and you don't know how to do that and keep yourself safe, my heart goes out to you. Yeah. I mean, you, you had a very difficult decision to make yourself. And, you know, trust me, I agonize over our decision. It, it's not going to be any easier for anybody. No, and I didn't share the experience because I'm asking for any sympathy or for anybody to feel bad for me. I just wanted to be transparent and A, to give you a little bit of a peek into what I personally saw and observed in my time there Thursday and how it compares to what I see normally. Uh, but I and just kind of wanted to... And from our coverage perspective, we're going to do everything we can to give you the most comprehensive coverage we yeah. can during the session. And we're going to be transparent about the process, about... you know. Well, we couldn't get a comment from so-and-so because we were watching it over the stream. We've sent an email. You know, yeah. We've sent a text. Yeah. You know. Exactly. So yeah, just we know we need to talk to somebody. We're trying. We're working on it. Yeah. But we're not in the building with them right now because of we've made. So we will we will be as comprehensive and as transparent as we can be. Yeah, so just wanted to give full disclosure on kind of how we're doing things. That's why I shared that. I did have a sit-down interview with Scott Bedke where I asked him about access and safety protocols. I'm working on that for a larger piece next week that I will publish at the homepage www.idahoednews.org, uh, taking a look at what to expect access and safety-wise uh, at the State House. I did ask Speaker Bedke. I said... What steps is the legislature going to take uh, to help protect Idahoans who want to be able to have their voice heard this year but may have health concerns or may be at high risk? And he said to me the legislature will be taking steps to modify its behavior to accommodate those types of people. And I said, can you give me an example of that? And he said, yes. Uh, and he was speaking for himself. He said, if, if you come to me and you're respectful and you're wearing a mask, I will wear a mask around you. And, and Speaker Bedke did mask up for our interview, as did Representative Meg, Megan Blanksma. But I asked Speaker Bedke, I said, okay, can members of the public expect that out of every legislator? And he said, no, there will be no mandates out of the Speaker's office uh, on how the legislators will conduct themselves this year. So if you want to find out a little bit more from my talk with Speaker Bedke and other key legislators about what to expect safety and access-wise, at least based on what we know now, you can look for that uh, in next week's newsletter and in the second half of next week at idahoednews.org.
Yes. So we'll have a lot more to get to on that. And, you know, we'll, we'll just, uh, it will be a different session. It will be a very uh, different session to to cover. It'll be a very different session to uh, to take part in, whether you're an elected official or a, a staffer or a lobbyist or an everyday citizen uh, wanting to you know, participate in the process. Yeah, and uh, we know uh, that it's going to be a big year with a lot of yeah. important policy discussions. And so we will be committed to covering the news. It will just look and feel a little bit different. Uh, that was a dominant topic this week, Kevin, but it was not our only big topic. I know that you wanted to spend some time talking about this Launchpad conference uh, that you observed earlier this week. Um, who participated? What did you find out? And, and what does it mean going forward? This is really kind of an interesting uh, summit that Boise State held on Tuesday. And the, the concept behind it, and we have several stories about it on uh, on the, the site. So if you want to find out more about what was said and what was talked about and where things go from here, uh, go to edoednews.org and look up my stories. But what Boise State is trying to do here, and this is really, uh, President Marlene Trump is taking this issue on uh, very seriously and, and very personally, is the idea that in the middle of this pandemic, students, young adults are really struggling with figuring out how to you know, launch their lives, and hence the Launchpad uh, name for this, this conference. You know, young adults are feeling much more um, you know, of the mental health challenges uh, stemming from the pandemic, anxiety, depression, uh, thoughts of suicide. And, and President Trump has looked at the national research, even some of the international research about how the pandemic is affecting the mental well-being of young adults. And she's taking this on as an issue. And I, and I say that it's a personal issue for her because it really is. When I talked to her before the conference, I had an interview with her uh, right before Thanksgiving because I wanted to do a preview piece. We were talking about it. And, you know, she has an 18-year-old son. And she said that, you know, her son is really trying to figure out how to you know, launch his life now. And, you know, it's, it's complicated. It's difficult. Even things like just getting an after school job, uh, you know, these things are complicated. And at one point she said that her, her son told her that this is going to affect people in his age group more than anybody else. And Trump said, pretty candid. She said at first, I, I scoffed at the idea. I thought my, I thought my son was, you know, way mistaken because it's going to affect adults much more, you know, adults who are having to, you know, navigate their job and navigate, you know, virtual learning with their, with their sons and daughters at home, that this is going to be much tougher on adults than it is on young adults. But she's looked at the research and she's kind of changed her, her thinking about this. So what she did and what Boise State did was assembled these panels, and there were more than 20 college and university administrators from all over the country who took part. And really interesting mix of colleges and universities that were represented. I mean, you had some of the some of the big land grant state universities, like University of Tennessee and University of Minnesota. You had um, Howard University in Washington, D.C., which is a, historically serves a uh, black student population. You had UC Berkeley, which is a, a state institution, but one of the most uh, you know, prestigious uh, universities in the country. You had a community college in Texas. You had you know, smaller institutions. You had, you know, and you had you know, 
you know, folks from Boise State participate. And I was really interested in a lot of what I heard. And I had to kind of break it into two different stories. I was interested in what the colleges and universities have tried to do in the interim to try to help students through through the storm, through the pandemic. And a lot of it, it's, it's trying to increase counseling services and figure out how to get counseling services available to students. And some students are more comfortable going to an online counseling service. Other students look at that as it's just one more Zoom meeting and I'm so burned out on Zoom meetings, I can't do another one. Yeah. <laughs> so it's trying to get counseling to, to students because I think all of the administrators agreed there's a need and it's a more acute need now. Yeah, and I talk about little things we're trying to do to make the transition and make the these turbulent times a little bit easier for students. I mean, uh, Stony Brook University on Long Island, not, not too far from where I grew up, uh, one of the things that they're doing, and the students came up with this idea, and it sounds so simple, but any of us who've been in a Zoom meeting can relate to this. The students said, hey, will you just open up the Zoom meetings 30 minutes early and keep them open 30 minutes after class? We don't even want the professors to necessarily be there, but we want to be able to visit as students and try to make connections as students, you know, like students in real classes get to do, Yeah. you know, just kind of chat and, you know, get to know each other a little bit and compare notes and, you know, you know, just socialize. And so the university jumped on that idea. And as I heard it, I was like, you know, you know why aren't we doing this in everyday life too? Because we've all been in Zoom meetings where it's like, you start, you stop and everybody's gone all of a sudden. So it's a lot of little little things, but a lot of, you know, kind of best practices like that, best practices like setting up a fix-it shop for kids who have a computer that isn't working when they really need a computer to do their classwork. So I was interested in some of the the ideas and the innovations that have come along to try to weather this, uh, you know, this, you know, pandemic. But I'm also was really curious about what they what the university and college officials were saying about the future and what the spring is going to look like. Uh, and that was the focus of my piece that I published on Thursday. Um, you know, we heard from Alicia Esty, who is the chief of staff at Boise State. So she is uh, President Trump's, uh, you know, second in command on a lot of things. And through most of the pandemic, uh, Esty has been. She's been kind of the enforcer. She's been kind of the cop on, on pandemic policies. I mean, she has sent out some pretty stern emails to the university community saying, look, if we want to stay open, we got to do this and this. And if you don't do it, we got problems. And we, you know, there are consequences for, you know, not following the protocols. And she was very candid about how Boise State got to the, the point that they are getting through the fall semester. She said, you know, yeah, it wasn't pretty. And we had some candid discussions about whether we could keep face-to-face uh, -face learning through the semester. She was pretty candid about the spring. She said, you know, I get it. People are tired of isolation. They're tired of being scolded about wearing masks. And they're not necessarily going to jump on a vaccine. You know, vaccines may be available in the spring. This is Idaho. Uh, you know, you know, student population, the, the campus population of Boise State, you know, not everybody's going to jump at the opportunity to to get the jabs. So it was interesting to hear that perspective and, you know, to talk in the story and to explore in the story. How much is at stake? 
for colleges and universities to exactly. stay open and maintain face-to-face learning because what we were hearing over and over from the administrators is this is what kids expect, this is what parents expect because they are oftentimes they're the ones paying the bills. This is what they expect. They want the face-to-face setting and they want a campus community. They want a connection. That's what kids are looking for. And really what kids need, I say kids, we're talking about young adults. This is what college students need right now. They need some sort of a connection. They need some sort of an environment. If we don't provide it, you know, it's 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 going to make the, the, the college education experience a lot less fruitful and a lot less uh, you know, a lot less successful for a lot of students. So really a good chance to kind of get a pulse of running colleges and universities in the pandemic and getting a variety of different perspectives. I mean, it's, you know, it's great to hear from, you know, college and university leaders here in this state and what they're dealing with, but to hear a lot of the same challenges and a lot of the same obstacles uh, facing colleges and universities all over the country and some innovative ideas uh, coming along from other places. But, you know, you know, it, this is a big problem, clearly, and, and a big challenge uh, for administrators all over the country. So it was a good chance to hear that and to try to uh, give a flavor of that in our coverage. Yeah, it, it, and it absolutely fits in. It, it, it's super timely. It absolutely fits in with your new area of focus, which is higher ed and navigating all of the challenges that they face. Uh, you got at least uh, two pieces out of it that I remember this week. Those are both up, like you said a few minutes ago, the homepage is www.idahoednews.org. Yep. Busy week, though, uh, like they all are anymore. Um, there's a lot more that we didn't get to. You can check those stories out uh, as well. Our Sammy Edge and uh, her partner from the Idaho Statesman, Nicole Foy, had their big Nuestras Voces, uh, kind of the culmination of their Latino listening project. Uh, they actually had Governor Otter, or excuse me, Governor Brad Little. Hello. Um, they, this was fascinating. Earlier this week, they actually facilitated a conversation with four young uh, Hispanic students in Governor Little uh, to talk about issues that Hispanic students have been facing and a lot of the challenges that these young people have come across and overcome, quite frankly, in their academic journey. It was a d- good discussion. That's archived at our Facebook page, um, the Idaho Education News Facebook page, there's also a news story from earlier uh, in the week, but that focused a lot yeah, on the achievement missed- gap and a lot of pressing issues facing Idaho. Yeah, if you missed the conversation Wednesday afternoon, like like Clark said, you can catch it on our Facebook page. It's well worth your while. These students are are poised, they're very articulate, they're very passionate about their future, and they ask some really insightful, good questions. Um, you know, they, you know, these kids are smart and sharp beyond their years. And, you know, it was a really good conversation. Uh, The students, you know, I was blown away by the students and, you know, Governor Little took time to listen to, to their questions. And and I thought had some, some thoughtful responses. So it's a very interesting dialogue, definitely worth your while. Right at the beginning one of the young women was asking a pretty detailed, lengthy question to Governor Little, uh, and, and he gave an answer. And then right off the bat, she had a really thoughtful follow-up question. And I have to tell you, as someone 
who has experience, um, when you're interviewing someone like a governor and you know what's on TV and being broadcast, to be able to think on your feet and come up with a follow-up question, I, I was just floored. I was so impressed. That's one of the hardest things to do is to maintain that poise and to respond on your feet. And my hat's off uh, to all of those young women and to Sammy and Nicole uh for moderating that debate. That was an awesome partnership between Idaho Education News and the Idaho Statesman. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool conversation. So it's uh, it's definitely worth your while. I, I watched it on Wednesday. I'll probably get to carve out some time here in the next few days to watch it again because it's, it, it's a must-see. Yep. Uh, thanks to Sammy and Nicole. Thanks to the four young women who participated in that. And thanks to Governor Little uh, for making time as well. Uh, a huge busy week. We will be back again next week with another new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. We have a couple more planned uh, before we take a brief holiday for Christmas and New Year's Eve. Getting ever closer to the 2021 legislative session, continuing uh, to monitor uh, the coronavirus pandemic and school reopening uh, and learning plans, a, a lot to get to and a lot of coverage. Uh, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Idaho Ed News. You can give us a like on uh, Idaho Education News on our Facebook page. And while you're there, check out Sammy and Nicole's project with the governor. It was called Nuestras Voces. Anyways, thanks so much for listening. I know this was a long show today. We had a lot to get to. We always have a lot of fun breaking down this ever-complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. Have a good one and stay safe. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.